I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 17. And we have been just a couple weeks into a study uh, through the life of Elijah. And we're going to continue there for the next several weeks, Lord willing. And uh, I, I have enjoyed uh, just looking at a biographical uh, study. I always find the biographies in Scripture to be so challenging and so encouraging. I, 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 read, I read the life of David. You know, a man, when God is looking for a, a guy that has his heartbeat, will follow him with his heart and will trust him, a, a guy that will lead his people, and he looks across the people of Israel and he finds this humble shepherd and says, there's my guy. He has a heartbeat to serve me and to follow me. And, and, I, and I read the life of David and my, my heart expounds backwards Lord, I want to be a guy like that. I want to be like a David. I, I want to be used if you want to be ready for your use. I read, I read guys like Abraham. who astoundingly, God says, get up from your country, get up from your people, and go to the land that I will show you. And Abraham begins to walk a, a, a massive journey around through the desert and down to the promised land. And, and again, I, my heart rings out, Lord, I want to be like Abraham. I want to be willing as a servant to be used by you. I read the story of the disciples throughout the New Testament and see their heartbeat to serve the Lord. And these are just regular guys, right? I mean, just, many of them had been just in regular vocations as fishermen or whatever they were involved with. And God says, this is the guys. These are the guys when I, when I die and resurrect and then ascend back into heaven These are the guys who are going to take the church and they're going to build the church and spread the gospel to all nations. And my heart says, man, I I, I can be a regular guy. I want to be that. I want to be a guy that God says, this is a guy I can use. I don't know if that's you or not. If that's your heart. When you you read the biographies, you're like, man, maybe me. Maybe God could take and use me for that. But that's, I hope it is. I hope that's soul-stirring when you read these biographies and um, th- that moves you that way but also have to, we have to be candid regarding the details that it involves if we only stop there thinking of their stories we think well then this is great this will be this will be easy i'm ready I- i'm i'm ready lord go ahead and let me be elijah to call down fire let me be a, a David to lead the people of Israel and we forget about the rest of their journey. Yes, David was anointed as a 14, 15 year old young man as a shepherd boy to become king of Israel. But if you remember, that didn't happen immediately. He then was chased by Saul all over the wilderness, sleeping in caves and running for his life. And it's not until he's 30 years of age does he become king of Judah And not until he's 37 does he become king of Israel. Two decades of struggle and running and trials and training that God puts him through. Abraham, I just mentioned, comes down as God commands him. Come down to the land that I will show you. And and then what happens when he gets there? Famine. Famine hits the promised land. God, you brought me here. You can imagine what he's thinking. You can imagine what his wife Sarah is thinking. He's got all these herds and all this stuff going on. And God, you brought us to a place where there's famine. We don't have food. And he goes down to Egypt and struggles. And it's a process. It's, it's decades before he's ready to offer up Isaac on the altar. 
The disciples was a journey. We think, oh, well, God called them. They must be ready. They step out of the boat, and they're ready to take it forward. Do you remember what happened? God took them through some literal storms. Matthew chapter 8. They had, they had just seen God do some amazing works, and they're sailing across the sea to go to Gadara, the other side, and, uh, and a storm arises. Jesus is asleep in the bow of the boat, and they're rowing, they're, they're toiling, they're afraid, we're going to perish. They finally wake up, Jesus, don't you care? We're going to die out here. And Jesus stands up, rebukes the wind, the waves, peace be still. And remember at that point they say, what manner of man is this? Even the wind, the waves obey his voice. Who is this? Later on, they continue in ministry, seeing God do, or Christ do amazing miracles and works. And they come up to uh, Bethphage area and they, they're asked by Jesus, how are we going to feed all this huge multitude? And Jesus says, well, you feed them. Well, all we have is a couple loaves and a couple fish. How's that going to do it? And they watch Christ feed thousands of people with that and then he sends the crowds away and says get in the boat go back to the other side i'm gonna go pray and i'll meet you there and what we read is then as they're toiling another storm arises christ ordains it and while they're again fearful for their lives they've got the baskets of food in the boat and yet they're still afraid we're gonna die out here and there comes jesus walking past them on the water Peter goes out, walks with Jesus in the water, goes back in the boat, and the, all the storm stops. And they say, truly this must be the Son of God. This journey of storms, this journey of trials, this journey of walking all this through, and we learn the same thing with Elijah. We, we, we come across Elijah at the beginning of chapter 17 of 1 Kings, boldly stepping in before Ahab and saying there's not going to be rain nor dew on the ground for these next years until at my word we're thinking man that guy has got it we know the story we know probably the most popular story with with Elijah which is the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and we're familiar with that and we think man this guy is ready for that right he's ready to go up there and call down fire and uh but God says no he's not ready yet I want to put him through some things to prepare him for that and to get him there. And so God, had, we saw last week we, that, that God enrolled uh, Elijah, so to speak, in the university of the dry brook. So he takes him to Cherith. Go there and I will feed you with ravens and I'm going to have you drink of the water there of Cherith. But then Cherith dries up. And we ended last week with Elijah sitting by the side of a dry brook, a wadi with no water running what's he gonna do now god takes him from there to the university of the empty bin the empty flower bin what's he gonna do when there's no food and and takes him to zarephath why because god puts us in the 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 refining fires he puts us in the trials and he puts us in different tests not because he's cruel so we need to understand god doesn't put us in those difficult times of life just to see well this will be entertaining from heaven well let me let me see how they handle this god does it for our good to prepare us to draw us closer to him like we just sang in in the first song we sang this morning how firm a foundation and the author we don't know who that was that wrote that 
Uh, he had it correct in that fourth stanza. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. God is wanting to, to burn off some of that dross. He's wanting to refine the, the, the spiritual fervor of our lives and our, our trust in Him. He wants us to trust Him deeper and more. And so what I want to do this morning is to look as the story continues in, in Elijah's life in verses 18 down to the end of the chapter in verse 24 is really see two more lessons that, that God is going to put Elijah in. And one of them is was he takes him and sends him to Zarephath with a poor widow who's going to feed him and as they are going to miraculously be sustained um, with flour and oil to keep on eating there. The other is the challenge of then the widow's son dies. And what to do now with the death of her son. And then I want to finish with just simply asking the question why. Because as I studied this throughout this time period, I kept coming back, why is this story in the life of Elijah? Why is it in Scripture? What is, the, what is it teaching us, and what are we to draw from this? Because we could have just easily gone from him at, 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 before Ahab at the beginning of the chapter to a couple years later at Mount Carmel. Why is this portion in here, and what do we learn from it? And and I think what we're learning is that God is growing trust. Trust by Eli- in Elijah. That Elijah would step out by faith even deeper. Be prepared for those next stages to step out boldly. I think God is going to even be using Elijah in the lives of others in these trials. We're going to see that with this widow from Zarephath. And, and God is working to draw others to trust him. So that when Elijah stands up in chapter 18 and verse 21 and says, How long, how long do you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Trust him. And if Baal, follow him. Make your decision. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to follow with your life? How long do you falter between two opinions? Make up your mind. Well, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to, to each one of us to consider why should we trust God and what are we learning as he takes us through. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll jump into the text this morning together. Father, I'm thankful for your word and the instruction as we see in these biographies in Scripture and specifically here in Elijah, how you put even those who you call and want to use and you have purposes. And, and Lord, we are, are struggle with as Proverbs 3 encourages us to trust in you with all of our heart, to lean not on our own understanding, because, Lord, we, we wrestle with that. We, we want to figure it out on our own and try to figure out our own resources. And, Lord, we see in the life of Elijah that you put him in places where there is no resources. He would learn to trust you more. And, God, I pray that you'd help us, that we also would learn from that, that our faith would be deepened, and we'd be willing to follow you. God, that we could be used of you in a greater way. So I pray that you'd use this in our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with, first of all, looking at 
the challenge of unpractical faith. And we'll see this really in the first story that, or the first part of the story that takes place here in verses 8 through 16 in the life of Elijah. And again, we, we pick up in the text, ending in verse 7, with Elijah sitting by the brook Cherith, and it's dry. There is no water running. He had been being fed by the ravens for a time period. And we read then in verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying... And there's three imperatives in verse 9. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Three imperatives that are given to him in the text there that we want to draw out. But it, it comes to us, and what we find is... This next stage, this next step, it may have been comforting to, to Elijah to hear. I'm sure it was comforting to, for Elijah to hear from God as he's sitting there by a, a dry wadi bed. Uh, what am I going to do? And he's patiently waiting to hear God speak to him. But this next instruction seems almost unbelievable. And so I, I gave this next one a, the title, Are You Kidding? Sometimes we may have almost a mindset when, when God has instructed us the next steps, Are you kidding? This difficult plan that's before Elijah. Notice it here. He says, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now, now think about this for a moment. Zarephath, at, at this stage, is not in Israeli territory. In fact, I think I put a map on the screens there. Zarephath is up above Phoenicia, um, and... This is probably about an 80 to 100 mile trek, depending upon where Cherith is at, a multi-day trip. But he's taking him out of his comfort zone. He had grown up over in the, the area of Tishbe and, and that area over there to the right of the Jordan, to the east of the Jordan. And he's going to move him from where he's comfortable to a place where it's Gentiles. Go to Zarephath. But beyond that, it tells us this is in Sidon. Now, why does that matter? Because Sidon, if you remember in chapter 16, when we started out this series, we, we learned that, that Sidon is uh, the king of the Sidonians, is a man by the name of Ethbal. And who's his daughter? Jezebel. Who's now married to the king of Israel. And Sidon and Ethbal, where, he's, where Ethbal is presiding over as king this is the area where where the the worship of baal is prominent this is the hub of of the worship of baal and god is saying i want to move you from this comfort area of where you grew up i'm going to move you all the way up to zarephath to the area the territory of sidon and you're going to be there where where ethbal is the king and i'm going to take care of you there can you imagine what Elijah is thinking? Are you kidding? You want me to go to Gentile country? We don't even like to go into those territories. We like to stay in our, in our comfort zone of Israel. We don't, we don't interact with the Gentiles. And you want me to go to where Ethbal is king? Jezebel, who I just took a stand against her and her husband. This is where her father is at. And you want me to live there? I kind of stand out, God. I got on this skin clothing, like this camel skin clothing thing that I wear, and, and I'm known as a prophet of Israel. I'm known by everybody around. And, and, the, and this famine, this, this drought and famine is affecting this territory too. Don't you think they're going to be angry at me also? 
you would think this whole thing would be going on in his mind of, uh, of almost arguing with God. In fact, Zarephath actually comes from a word that means to smelt or refine or to test. It was likely a place there up in Phoenicia that they did smelting of iron to make weapons and chariots and those things. It's very possible that even if some of the, the, the weaponry that they made was used at times in battle against Israel. And so he's going to go up there, but it's a, it's a place of testing and the refiner's fire. And God says, I want you to go there, and you're not just going to get up and go there, but I want you to dwell there. You're going to stay for some time until I tell you to leave. You can imagine what's going his, in his mind as he's going through all of this. And, and consider this. He goes on there and it says, as we come back to uh, verse uh, 9, See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. I commanded a widow to provide for you. That may not sound like it's difficult or it's just ratcheting up the, the pressure cooker, so to speak, but it is. Priscilla Shira and her uh, book, her study on the life of Elijah, she was writing on just the challenge of what this is, and she said this, the weakest, most vulnerable people on the socioeconomic ladder during Elijah's day were women. But the marginalization that every woman experienced solely because of her gender was heightened even further if the woman happened to be unmarried, or even worse, if she happened to be widowed. A widow truly existed on the fringes of society, living without any other protections and benefits of kinship. Having no male companion as a representative, her access to the public square was functionally zero. This is all these things piling up for what Elijah is being instructed to do. But notice his response in verse 10. He doesn't argue. It says, so he arose. And he went to Zarephath. He just gets up and obeys God and takes this four to seven day journey or whatever that might take for him to get there. And then he gets to Zarephath and it says he comes to the gate. And I imagine him sitting there at the gate or standing there at the gate as he's gotten up and he's, he's dirty. He's been traveling. He's been sitting by a wadi bed for, for probably months on end. Um, and so He's tired, he's thirsty, he looks kind of ragged, and he stands there by the, the gate, and people are coming and going, and he's thinking, okay, Lord, you said that you have commanded a widow to provide for my needs here. And he's just watching as people are going in and out, and thinking, I wonder who this widow is. Surely you, you provided for me a widow who was well endowed with finances, where her husband had a, a good life insurance policy. And so she's got well-stocked pantries and a large house. And this will be great. This will be fine. Who is this widow, Lord? Then he sees this woman gathering sticks. And we're not told how he knows it's her. Somehow, I don't know if the Lord just puts it on his heart, that's the woman. But he knows that's her. And the reality is, is by the fact that she's gathering sticks reveals that she's not only a widowed woman, but she's poor. She doesn't have servants to this job for her. She's out doing this work on her own. And so he asks her, 
He says to her in verse uh, 10, he called to her and said, please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, "Uh, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And so he, he kind of, he tests her a little bit and says, hey, would you give me this water? And then as she's going, he says, oh, could you also get me some bread? Now, I want to come back to that in just a second. Because it, it, as she responds, she says, the Lord your God lives. I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And so not only is she a widow and poor, but she's discouraged and depressed. This is all we got. We're going to die. But it says here that Jesus commanded, or God commanded her to take care of Elijah. But as you read that, you wonder, did she even know? Was it, she wasn't looking for Elijah. How does, what is this command that, he was doing that God gave to her well it appears that she doesn't know it appears that this is all kind of news to her and what I what I would take from that is this command is God's foreordaining and his sovereignty he's working it out he's got a plan in place that I'm going to provide and I'm going to work through this widow that's already there I foreordained it it's prepared for you she's going to meet your needs she doesn't know it yet, and he has instructed uh, her to, her, him to go, and he's ordained that she's going to be out there gathering sticks, and Elijah's going to be there at the gate. Everything's foreordained. In fact, um, the, the, it reminds me of one of the names of God, which is the name Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides, and that, that word actually entails, um, it comes from the Hebrew word that means to see. The Lord foresees and thus provides. That God is working ahead in advance. God is instructing and working ahead in advance for Elijah and is seeing the need and has worked to have this widow woman there. And so Elijah approaches her, asks for this drink and then the the food, and she indicates that, that, uh, one, it's not even her God, as the Lord, your God lives. We don't know exactly how... uh, she knows who he is, but likely she can tell by his, uh, by his appearance that he is a prophet and he is an Israelite. As the Lord your God lives, I, don't, I do not have bread. I don't even have that to give to you. My pantries are empty. There's nothing made. I'm going to gather sticks and we're going to make one last meal. I've got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. I'm going to make the last meal for myself and my son and then we're going to starve to death. That's it. What a difficult situation. That's why I said, wow, are you kidding? Are you kidding? This is the plan? It seems like a difficult plan to trust God with. I'm sure this is not what Elijah would have planned out for himself. Not what he would have chosen. Uh, God, are you going to send me with the rest of the prophets? They're, they're all being kept in a cave and they're being taken care of. You want to send me with them? I can have the comrades and, and have the fellowship. God, you want to you send me to a, a wealthy businessman's home? Or God, you want to send me to uh, a political leader's home where I can be protected and provided for there? No, no. I want you to go to Zarephath and Sidon 
I want you to dwell there and a, a, a widowed woman who is poor and destitute and is about to die of starvation, she's going to meet your needs. Okay. Okay. That's the trusting by faith. Philip Yancey, in one of his books, he said that faith is believing in advance will only make sense in reverse. I'm going to trust, God, that you know what you're doing here. I'm going to trust as you're, as you're putting me in this new job change and going this new direction that you know what you're doing here. I'm going to trust, God, as you're taking us through this difficult struggle in our family situation and you're leading me to do what is right and obey you with it, that you're going to lead and you're going to guide. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I'm going to trust you with it. God, I'm going to trust as we have mounting bills. I don't know how to pay them. But you're wanting me to, to be a part of this ministry or to do this thing or to, to maybe surrender to go into missions or to go into ministry. I'm going to trust that you will direct and you'll provide. So the question is, well, how? How do we, how do we keep that perspective when things are tough? How do we, how do we have that kind of faith? And, and what I want to do is, I, this isn't in your notes, but I was thinking through some things that I think are helpful, and, and you can jot them down. I want to give you four things to take, for you to take time to meditate on when that struggle of faith, when that refiner's fire and trial and testing is happening. Four things to keep in mind and to meditate on. The first is meditate on the character of God. You need to take time to ask yourself and dwell on and even maybe start to write out who is God? What are His attributes? That God is holy, that God is just, God is, that God is immutable, He knows all things, that He doesn't change and He is all-knowing, that, that God is good, that God is love, that God is my provider, and begin to dwell on, and you can make a long list of how the Bible describes who our God is and His character and His attributes and take time to meditate on that. Because if we're going to step forward, we're trusting Him. So who is He? Why is He worthy of our trust? And when that challenge of, man, I'm not sure I want to take this next step of faith, you need to take time to meditate on who is my God and His character. The second thing to meditate on is the sovereignty of God. It's good for us to dwell on and think about that God is on the throne and He's in control. Sometimes it seems like the world may be spinning out of control. But never once is it because our God is on the throne. And everything that happens is by His purpose and by His allowance. And so what's happening in your life is not out of his control or his allowance. It's by design. It's purposeful and it's intentional. And so think about that. If this God who I just meditate on his character, that he is loving and he is purposeful and all-knowing and all-powerful and all those attributes, and he is bringing me into this situation, there must be a purpose for this. So I'll step forward by faith. And then third thing to meditate on is the word of God. So you're meditating on the character of God, the sovereignty of God, and the Word of God. You need to fill your mind with and be thinking through Scripture, what has God said to me? 
Did he tell me that he would abandon me in these difficult times? Or did he tell me that I I will never leave you nor forsake you? Did he tell me that if I trust in him and lean not on my, on my own understandings that my steps will be just haphazard, I'm going to make the wrong steps? No, he told me that he will guide my steps. So we need to think and dwell on what has God said? Who is he? What's his character? Is he still in control that he has directed this in my life? And what has he told me that I can lean into And then one last thing is to consider and meditate on the journey with God. Think think back on your own personal relationship with God. I think that's important because I believe in our lives we build faith upon faith. In other words, God puts us in a situation and we see his hand in our lives and then we grow from that. And the next time we look back and we say, hey, God took care of me there. God led me there. I'll trust him here. And we learn from situation to situation. It wasn't that God took Abraham and instantly gave him a son and said, now I want you to offer up Isaac, your only son Isaac. God grew his faith in piece by piece journeys in a personal walk and relationship with God. And so look back and see, what has God done in my life before? So if you think through those four things, the character of God, the sovereignty of God, the word of God, what he has said, and the journey with God, then you think through and you meditate on those, you're ready to say, okay, God, I don't understand, but I know you do. I will trust you. And even though we're saying, man, are you kidding? This doesn't make sense. To you it does. And I'm going to yield this over. I'm going to give my life back to you and trust you with this. Now, with that being said, notice how God does provide here. Let's go from, are you kidding, to how did that happen? We see it here in verses 13 to 16. Let's notice this portion. So Elijah says to her, this is verse 13, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first, and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, Here he gives the command of God. God's going to do this. The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away, did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now, I don't know about you, but I would rather have a full bin of flour. I would rather have a bank account that has some buffer zone in there. I would rather have situations where it's, it's not as difficult. But God sends to Elijah this woman who has just enough flour and just enough oil. And, 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 and he tells her, go and do this. And she does it. She trusts God and and trusts Elijah and goes and does what he says. And so, you know, God has promised in Isaiah 41, 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. God is going to take care of her. God's going to take care of Elijah. 
Hudson Taylor was a British missionary to, to China, one of the early pioneers and an amazing man of faith. And he said this quote, he said, our Heavenly Father is very experienced. He knows that His children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Jews in the desert for a period of 40 years. We do not expect He would send three million people to China, but if He did, He would have ample ways to sustain them all. Depend on it. God's work, done in God's way, will never lack God's supply. What a great statement. God's work, done in God's way, will never lack God's supply. We don't know the length of time that Elijah is going to be here in Zarephath because we don't know how long he was in Cherith. But we do know that the drought is three and a half years. So if we were just to split that in half, we're likely looking at, he's probably a couple years in Zarephath. Every day, go into the bin and, and she's going to go and prepare the next meal and she scrapes the bottom takes out of the bin whatever's left there and makes the flour and the oil and it's all gone later in the day goes to make the next meal sure enough she's able to scrape together a little bit more it's not like the bin all of a sudden just filled to the top it was just enough for the next meal just enough for the next thing that's that's a tough walk of faith sometimes we're not exactly sure how that took place or what, how that happened. Obviously, we just know that God provided. He put it there. And so God is, is moving in that. And so we see this challenge of unpractical faith. This doesn't, this isn't practical. It doesn't make sense to go to Zarephath. It doesn't make sense to go to Sidon. It doesn't make sense to be provided by this widow who has no resources. But God works through it as they step out in faith. Then we go to the next lesson, lesson number two, which is the challenge of unprecedented faith. Verse 17 begins with, now it happened after these things. Well, after what things? Well, it's the the flour bin never running out, the, the jar of oil never running dry. After these things that God's faithfulness had been revealed week after week, day after day, month after month going on. And, and I'm sure Elijah shared with them, this is God's provision, God's doing this and giving thanks, and God's faithfulness is revealed. But now this school, the refiner's fire there of Zarephath, the smelting pot, so to speak, is going to get hotter. And what we find next is that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him so basically he dies we see the plight of a son after all the miraculous provision to keep them all alive in the middle of drought now the widow's son gets sick and dies and elijah the prophet of god who has likely been telling them about jehovah god has been living with them in the home and has been telling them this is god's provision and all of a sudden the son dies And we're thinking again, why? Why? Why why do bad things happen to good people who are trying to do right? Why Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I think two things to answer that question is, one, we still live in a fallen world and we're all fallen. We're all still sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. And all of creation groans under the curse, Romans 8 tells us. 
earthquakes happen because creation is cursed. Tsunamis happen because creation is cursed. Drought happens because all of creation, bad things happen because we're still in a fallen world. But second of all, we need to remember the importance of suffering. That God uses those times, God uses those things for our benefit and growth. It's, it's never healthy spiritually for us if we, if we don't go through them. We're, we're to count it joy, James says, when we fall into various trials. Why? Because it produces patience. And when patience has completed its work, it makes us complete and perfect, ready for the Lord to use. God is continually using those in our lives for His purpose. And so we, we, if we don't have those and we just, our lives are just easy all the time, we tend towards self-reliance. We, we tend towards thinking that we've got under control and independence there and self-centered in those situations. God has a plan of faith with this Gentile woman and her son. And so we move from the plight of a son to the, the perspective of a mother in verse 18. As she says to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? Her reaction is a common reaction and struggle for those who are going through difficult times that are grieving. Because the, the question that runs through those, the minds of those who are grieving from a situation is, why? I want a reason why. Tell me why this happened. And so she's saying, she's blaming Elijah. And that's a common thing, is looking for, where can I place the blame for this? This had to have happened because of someone or something. A lot of times, if you're around people that are grieving, they get frustrated. And they're blaming and they're asking the question, why on, on these situations? And Elijah just happens to be the guy that's in the path. What have I to do with you, Elijah? Why did you bring this upon our home? We brought you in here and now this happened. That's a difficult place for Elijah to be in. But she also not only blames, she also takes it back and has this mindset that, well, this must be because of certain sin in my life. It's another common fallacy that comes into the situations when we're grieving to ask, okay, God, what did I do to deserve this? And we think of it almost in a, in a means of karma. I must have done bad, so I'm getting bad. It's a, it's a common thinking. If you read the book of Job, Job is there and he's lost everything pretty much. And his friends come along and what do they do? For chapter upon chapter, they argue with him, Job, you have sinned because this has happened upon you and this must be God's hand of judgment upon you. You know, repent of your sin and get right. Job, it's your fault. And Job's saying, I don't think I have. I've been righteous before God. I've not done anything that is deserving this. But it's a common reality or a common struggle is to place those things. And that's her perspective. Well, what does Elijah do? What's his or what's his response he has a choice of how he wants to respond he could have argued and said this isn't having to do with me your son's not dead because of me your son's lived these extra months and been sustained you were gonna he was gonna die of starvation if i hadn't come into your lives this isn't my fault don't blame me he could have tried to to reason it out well god must be doing something here and and so you got to trust him 
But he doesn't do any of that. He simply says, give me the boy. He takes him in his arms. He takes the son and he takes him to the upper room where he had been staying up the stairs. And there's a room there and he, he lays him on his own bed. And, and the, the course of what takes place here is, is interesting. But I, I find it interesting that he doesn't argue with her. He simply just takes the child and is silent. He, in essence, carries her burden as part of his own. That is such a valuable lesson for, for the church and for believers as we consider, how do I come alongside those who are grieving? How do I come alongside those who are mourning or going through a difficult situation? You don't have to come along and say, well, let me give you these three verses. That's fine sometimes to do that, but sometimes what they need is someone to weep with those who weep. You know, Job's friends did the first thing right. When Job's friends first came, they came and sat with him in the ash heap for a week and didn't say a word. You know what he needed? That. He needed someone to come alongside and say, your hurt is my hurt. I'm going to hurt with you. And I want you to know that you matter and you care. And how can I then take up your burden? I'll help carry it with you. And that is such a good thing what Elijah does here as an instruction for us. But don't you also consider Elijah's position as he takes this son up and he places him on, this, on his own bed. Is that there is no precedence for Elijah to think, well, God's going to heal this son. There has been nobody in the course of history or in at least biblical history that we have ever recording of that anybody's ever been raised back to life. It's not like a case law where you can say, well, God, you did this back in this date, on this place, in this situation, so you did it there, you must do it here. No case law, no precedence. He takes him up to the room, and he asks God, he pleads with God, oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. He takes the boy up there and does something. Again, there's no precedent to this. He, he prays, he pleads with God and then he, he, he lays on top of the boy. Why? We have no idea why. Lays on top of the boy hand to hand, leg to leg, foot to foot, face to face, and says, God, would you revive this, this child? And then gets off. Nothing happens. And then he does it again. Lays on him, hand to hand, face to face, chest to chest. God, would you revive this son? Would you bring this soul back into him? Gets off. Nothing happens. Does it a third time. Why he does it three times, we don't know. Some, some speculate, well, he must be appealing to the Trinitarian aspect of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I see no reason to go there. I think what Elijah was doing was, I'm going to do this until God responds. Because it says, after his third time, verse 22, then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived that word then struck me. Because I, I'll be honest, sometimes I'm tempted to, 
to get weary in asking in my prayer and to quit. I'm tempted sometimes to say, well, I prayed about it. God hasn't entered and must move on. Elijah prays, does it. Elijah prays, does it. Elijah prays, does it. And then the, word of the, Lord, then the Lord answered him and responded to that. That's a challenge to us that as, as the Bible even in James 5 when it talks about Elijah, it gives Elijah as the example of a, a righteous man who, whose prayers were effective. It says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There, there is this aspect of I'm going to keep on going before the Lord. I'm going to keep pleading before the Lord and that effective fervent continual prayer of a righteous man avails much. Hey, some of you have been praying for someone to come to Christ for a long time. Don't quit. Some of you have been praying for a situation in your home to change, and you're saying, I don't know how God's going to do this. I'm tempted to quit and go a different direction. Don't quit. Keep praying. Keep fervently praying. Keep righteous before God, and keep on trusting that God's going to work in that situation. Don't quit. I got, a part, I got to be a part of a situation of a, a baptizing years ago, uh, this, this man his, uh, that was in our church in West Virginia, and his wife had prayed for, her, for him for 65 years for him to come to Jesus Christ. And she would at different times and come up to him and say, when are you going to trust Jesus Christ? And he would blow her off. And one day, she said, hey, would, I'm going to go to church. Would you come to church? Would you, would you trust Jesus Christ? And he said, yes, I will. He ended up getting saved, and up baptizing him. And she said, I didn't know what else to do but to keep on praying. Don't quit. Elijah keeps on praying there. Well, then we see as, as Elijah brings the child back out, the praise of the mother. It says, Elijah took the child, verse 23, and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now by this, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. It's interesting what her response is. We don't read that she says, oh, thank you. I'm sure she did some of those things. I'm sure she embraced him. I'm sure there was all those things. But the word of God gives us what we need to know here. And what it tells us is it was a verification. What you've been telling us, Elijah, you've been telling us about the Lord God, Jehovah. He's a powerful God. He's an awesome God. He's more powerful than Baal, that we can trust him. Now I know that you are the prophet of God. Now I know that God's word is truth. And I'm going to trust him. That her, her praise is God is true. And so this miracle happens to authenticate Elijah and his message. And so what we realize is that God was being gracious to take her through this difficult trial to reveal to her that he was a true God and his word was true. He was putting her through an incredibly difficult situation so that she would say, yes, I will believe. And sometimes God puts people through some really tough situations. It wasn't even the trial of that they thought they were going to starve in the unending bin of flour or the unending jar of oil. It took getting down to her son. She's already born her husband dying. Her son was her last living hope there for him to die 
and then be revived and she says okay now I will trust the Lord God and that need of that so we've seen the challenge of the unpractical faith and the challenge of the unprecedented faith of Elijah I want to finish with just real quickly here the conclusion of unparalleled faith and again as I studied through all of this in this passage it's an exciting passage and it's it's, it's a pleasure to study, but I kept coming back to the question of why. Why is it in here? Why, why are we given this account in the life of Elijah and, and, the con, and his, specifically, specifically as he's confronting Ahab and the worship of Baal? I'm just going to give two thoughts. One is that God often uses suffering to mold us in faith and godly character. We see in this that this is part of this preparation training process. And it is not unloving of God. God is, is preparing us because He wants to, to use us for more. And I believe that God was preparing Elijah for the next stage. For the next command, the next task. And God puts us in different situations that are suffering or struggles of faith and trials. So He can b- grow our faith and grow us in godly character. You know, the, the Romans used to have a procedure when they would thresh grain. They would have one person lay out the, the sheaves of grain on the ground, and they, another person would take an animal with this, this cart, and, it, and it, this cart had a, like a roller drum, and it had built on this roller drum, it would have bits of iron and, and stone and different things, and it would run over the, the grain, it would break it up, to make the chaff come off. And this, this cart that they used was known in the Latin as a tribulum, from which we get our word tribulation. And we might look at that tribulum and look at tribulation and we think, well, that's harsh. But the tribulum was not designed just to crush the grain. It was designed to reveal the grain. It was designed to actually to, to, to remove the chaff, to remove the things that were distractions, to remove the things that were unuseful so they could get what, what was the, the, the blessing, the fruit, the grain that was there in store. And what we realize is that sometimes God might allow the, the tribulum in our lives. Not because He's harsh, not because He just wants to run us over, but He says, I want to remove some more of that chaff. I want to, to reveal the beautiful grain in your life and, and the glory and the blessing that I have for you. And so I'm going to put you through this situation. Trust me. Trust me. The second reason here is that God uses the, miracul- the, the miracles of the miraculous to draw people to faith and to follow Him. Really, if you study Scripture, the miraculous events in Scripture really happen in three time periods. In the life of Moses and God having Moses confront the Egyptians and their pagan gods and the, the plagues deal with that and, and Moses coming back uh, to Egypt there. The situation, the time period of Elijah and Elisha as they're combating and confronting the prophets, uh, the worship of Baal. And the time there with Jesus Christ and his disciples. If you study your Bibles, you'll find that the miracles that we see in Scripture outside of creation take place around those three events. Why? Well, in all of those situations, 
The challenge was that people might believe that the Lord is God and should be trusted and worshipped over anything else. With Moses going back, God even challenged Moses to to reveal to him that, that he was the true God as he stands at the burning bush on the mountain there and and, and Moses says, well, I'm not sure that I can go back. And I, what, what, what tools do I have? And God says, throw down your staff and it becomes a serpent. Put, it, put your hand into your cloak and it becomes leprous. He puts it back in again. It becomes clean and, and pure again. And Moses then goes back to, to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And the plagues directly relate to the gods of Egypt that they worshipped. And God was having Moses say, hey, you think those are gods? Let me show you that I'm God. People of Israel, trust me. Those aren't gods. Come and I will lead you. I will take care of you. I will lead you out of this. Trust me. With Elijah and Elisha, the same situation. The, the people of Israel had turned from trusting and following the one true God and they were worshiping Baal. And God has Elijah come in with his miracles of the drought and the miracles there on, on Mount Carmel and the different various miracles to reveal that God is no God, but the true God is Jehovah God and you can trust him. The same thing happens with Christ and the disciples. It's the miracles are there to reveal Jesus Christ is the true God. He is the Messiah that was prepared and, and, and prophesied to us. And all of the, the, the pagan worship that's there in, in, in Rome and, and outside of this, that's not the true God. In fact, it's interesting to me, if you study the, the New Testament there, as Jesus was training his disciples, one of the places he took his disciples to was a very unique place, Caesarea Philippi. Matthew 16 reveals the account to us. In Matthew 16, he takes them. They had been over. Uh, uh, they just healed a blind man up in Bethphage. And they head up north t- towards Mount Hermon, the northern region of Israel. And at Mount Hermon, there is these, these springs that come out of the mountain there that feed the headwaters to the Jordan River. But there at Caesarea Philippi, which is a Roman territory, it had been rebuilt by the Romans. And it was a place where they had two different temples. There was a temple to Caesar where they worshipped Caesar with all different kinds of sacrifices and things to Caesar. And there was also a temple to a god Pan, P-A-N. Sometimes people refer to him as Pontius. And in Pontius, he was a half goat, half man. And they would offer animal and human sacrifices there at at, uh, Caesarea Philippi to Pan. And all kinds of lewd and, and debauched type of things that took place there. But there behind the temple was what was known as the Gates of Hades. It was a pit, a, 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 a cave that went down, and they believed that that was the, 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 the entry place for the underworld for Satan and his demons. And Jesus takes his disciples to the, the, the most wicked, heinous place. I'm going to take you to the Gates of Hades. And he asks them the question. On his way up, he asks them, well, who do people say that I am? He said, well, some say you're Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he gets there with the temple of Caesar, the temple of Pan, the gates of Hades in the backdrop, and he asks them, who do you say that I am? Is that God or am I God? You see the same situation? Moses, is the gods of Egypt God? 
or is Lord Jehovah God? Elijah, is Baal God? He's the one who provides for your, he's the one who provides for the, the water and the rain, the lightning, and even life. Or is Jehovah God the real God? The question comes down over and over again in our lives. Is God the true God? And if he is, will I trust him and follow him? Who do you say that I am? It's it's really a right question. It's a a natural question. What do you believe about Jesus? Is he your God? Does he have right to your life? That you'll trust him through whatever you're going through in your life because he's a true God. I believe that's part of the reason why we come to that in this situation in, in 1 Kings 17 because we go to chapter 18 and now we're going to see he's going to confront those prophets of Baal. Baal. Sorry. And it's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge there. But God was leading him step by step to get to that place. What's God doing in your life to prepare you to say, okay, God, I'll trust you. I'll give my life to you and I'll surrender. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text and the study and the challenge of Elijah. And Lord, as we each have to consider that question that Jesus Christ himself asked, who do you say that I am? Lord, I pray that you'd help us that we would, like Peter, say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we would trust you with our lives. Or there may be some here today that have strayed from that or maybe have never made that decision to make Jesus Christ Lord of their lives and to trust that he died on the cross for their sins. And they're going to trust him and follow him. Lord, I pray today that you would be working their hearts and lives to see this is the truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no way to you, no way to the Father but through him. There is no other God but Jehovah. And God, we praise you for that today. And as we sometimes go through the different trials, the different journeys in our life, Lord, help us to trust you, recognizing that you are in control. We'll thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.